I was talking to a trans activist yesterday at Mount Royal University here in Calgary who said that abortion victim photography was inappropriate for the same reason that the gratuitous and sexually steeped pride parades in Canada were inappropriate. A fascinating conversation. Here's how I responded. Hi, folks. My name is Cam. I am the host of the Pro-Life Guys podcast, a podcast dedicated to equipping you with the tools that you need to change minds, save lives, and transform culture through compassionate and compelling conversations about abortion. Um, it's a pleasure to have you along for the ride. Thank you for all of you who have tuned in for multiple episodes. We are getting so, so close to 100,000 downloads. I would love it if you could help us um, hit that goal. Myself, Maddie Halleck in the production department, all the other wonderful people at CCBR who help out in various ways on the podcast. We are at just over 95,000 downloads since launch, which is absolutely incredible for a niche podcast like a Pro-Life Guys podcast. Thank you for being along for the ride. If you're new to the show, check on our other content. We got a ton out there for you. You can find it on your favorite podcatcher, whether that's Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcast. If you're a hipster and, and do Stitcher or something like that, by all means, do that. Find us on YouTube. Um, you can also go to our website, prolifeguys.com. Um, we got some merch there. We got some water bottles and, and T-shirts and that kind of thing. And, and yeah, today's episode is a really interesting one. So time of recording today is Thursday um, in my neck of the woods. And yesterday, Wednesday, I was doing outreach with a team of staff and volunteers at Mount Royal University here in Calgary, Alberta. And I love doing pro-life outreach on campus for a bunch of reasons. For, um, I mean, first reason, not only are we dealing with the future movers and shakers of our nation, not only are we uh, talking to voters, not only are we talking to the future doctors and politicians and lawyers and tradespeople and, and people who are bringing about change in our world in the future, we're obviously talking to current mothers and fathers and vulnerable demographics because the vast majority of people at universities are late teens, in their 20s, some early 30s, that kind of thing, lots of different folks at university. But the majority of them are in that high-risk demographic for abortion, people who are in the age demographic and also in kind of areas of uncertainty, that they're not fully into their careers, they don't, may not have the financial stability um, that that comes with having a career or, or stable relationship or whatever it may be. And so there's a current need, there's a future need, the other reason why I love being on campuses is because people have time, right? All summer we spend um, on street corners downtown, and there's a lot of people who are working on a very rigid schedule. They, they've got a half hour for their lunch break. Maybe some of them have an hour for their lunch break, but they're dashing out to the, the local diner to get a sandwich, to get a bite, bite to eat, or, or meet up with a, a friend or a coworker, and then they have to get back. There isn't a tremendous amount of flexibility in most people's jobs that would allow them to stick around and have a long conversation with a pro-lifer. And so that's a little bit different on campus, right? That, that not only are there students that have long gaps in between their classes, they, they might have a, a multi-hour gap. They might be done classes by 1030 in the, uh, in the morning and might be spending the rest of the day vaguely studying at lunch hour, they might hit in the gym, they might be going for a walk, meeting with a friend, whatever it may be. And so you got people who aren't in class, but even the people who are in class um, often see those classes as somewhat optional. I, I remember when I was in university, even um, first university, I don't think I missed a single 
class except for like the one dentist appointment or something that I couldn't reschedule and it was um, during a class um, bit. When I got into the second year, I started missing a couple more classes for really important reasons of big pro-life displays or traveling or, or family events or things like that. I don't want to say that I got all the way to the like D's get degrees, kind of skip all of my classes and, and try to wing it through exams. But the further I got into university, the more I realized that the notes are posted. Most of it's in the textbook anyways. And anything that I didn't understand um, from reading through that, I could go to office hours and get a pretty good um, rundown from the professor. They love people who come to office hours, even people that they know skip their class. Um, and so by the end of my university tenure, um, I, I was skipping far more classes than I had ever anticipated. And I'm sure far more classes than my parents ever wanted me to skip. Um, I got my degree. You can see it in the background. It, it happened. It was great. Um, I, I did relatively well, but thankfully I was able to participate in the entire um, university experience. I got very involved with the pro-life club, but I'm digressing. Many of the people that we interact with on campus, we have a longer runway with people who are in vulnerable demographics and also have the opportunity, availability, willingness to have conversations with us. It's fantastic. And so I love being there. We had some great conversations, uh, my colleagues and I. And as I alluded to in the intro, I had a really interesting conversation um, with a trans activist and, and not one of the like brand new trans activists. We had, we had uh, one girl come who um, was 18 years old and was really still trying to figure out how the transgender movement was really working. Um, no, the, the fellow that I talked to, he said that he had transitioned um, in 2007 and and had been living a transgendered lifestyle um, for, for over a decade now. And he made a very interesting point that, that I think that we hear sometimes with different language and whatnot regarding abortion victim photography, but it was different than our standard um, challenges towards abortion victim photography. He wasn't questioning the accuracy of the images. He wasn't even questioning the um, the efficacy or appropriateness as it pertained to post-abortive moms or moms who had experienced miscarriages or, or even children, um, I find it very fascinating when those conversations come up, particularly on a university campus and, and the cries of, but there's children everywhere. Sorry, we're on a university campus. Um, this is one of the, the least likely places to see a, a trove of children go strolling by. Um, Dealt with that in a different episode, though. All of those issues, I talked to my colleague Jonathan Van Maren, as well as a conversation with Dr. Monica Miller, one of the pioneers um, of using abortion victim photography and, and really conveying the fact that this isn't about um, trying to find the goriest, most graphic, most heinous um, image, but rather finding images which convey the humanity of preborn children and the atrocity of abortion. I'll post both of those episodes in the show notes. Um, but today I want to address this kind of attempted analogy or attempted parallel that both this trans activist had made and also one of my pro-life supporters had made when I first started doing pro-life work. And so to flesh out a little bit further, what this trans activist was saying was that he argued, you know what, abortion victim photography is inappropriate and unnecessary in a public setting like this. And he believed that he was being consistent because he explained to me that he was very opposed to how the vast majority of pride parades and trans activists actually function nowadays. He said, I don't think that the trans movement, that the, the homosexual movement should be out there um, with naked people charging through the streets of Calgary during pride week or pride parades and that kind of thing. This isn't about scarring and, and horrifying people. 
this should be done tastefully. And he tried to distance himself from the contemporary um, LGBT plus movement. And and it was interesting because he was trying to build common ground with me, which which is a fantastic start. Common ground works in a lot of different areas. It's not only the tool of pro-lifers, it's the tool of everyone. And it was tempting to try and and draw him a little bit further along in that. And so I started by like, you know what, I, I really appreciate that. There, there's a lot of LGBT plus whatever activism that, that is very, very graphic and very inappropriate and wildly um, unacceptable to be displayed in public. And so we, we could actually agree on that and found some degree of common ground on that. And then I made an analogy and I said, you know what, I, I don't see this quite being a parallel with the pride parades in Canada. Imagine that there was a country somewhere in the world that was rounding up and slaughtering people who identified as transgendered or homosexual. Maybe maybe they hadn't even committed any sexual sins or, or acts that they disagreed with. They just identified as being transgendered or homosexual. They hadn't robbed any banks. They hadn't killed anybody. They hadn't even done anything that could be argued to be um, sexual indecency. They, they simply came out and identified in this way. Imagine if those people were being rounded up, pulled out of their homes, drawn out of their, their places of work, and slaughtered in the street. Just killed for the fact that they identified as transgendered or homosexual. And imagine that the cries of the transgender community, the homosexual community, were not heeded by anyone. They said, you know what? I, we really don't think that that's happening. Or we don't think that it's that bad. Or we don't think that trans people are actually humans. Imagine if that was the response from the vast majority of the world, that people didn't lift a finger, they didn't do anything, they didn't act, they didn't intercede, because they said, you know what? That's just propaganda. That's not actually happening. Nobody is actually being killed for being transgendered or homosexual. Either that or saying, you know what? Transgender people are not actually people. Didn't you know transgender people are actually a different species or, or just a clump of cells, dare I say? Um, and, and he was nodding along. And I said, what would you do? Well, I, I, would, I would explain it to people. I would explain exactly what was happening. I would, I would, I would show them the evidence. I would show them what was happening. And he had that light bulb moment. And he said, if people didn't believe that this was happening or didn't believe that it was happening to somebody like them, I would have to show them. I would have to show them that it was happening. I would have to show them that it was happening to someone like them. Bingo. And that helped him understand why we were using abortion photography. He still didn't like it. Yeah, he went off and, and talked to one of my other colleagues and tried to bring up the exact same argument. But it stopped him in his tracks at least for a couple of moments as he realized that the reason we use these abortion victim images is not because we like showing them. It's not because they are... It's exciting to get a rise out of people or because we're some kind of provocateurs. I, I certainly would love even less confrontation around the pro-life issue. I cannot wait until these images become a record of the past, to, to paraphrase um, Lewis Hine from the child labor um, movement and, and the, the photographer who captured the injustice and violence and injuries that were happening towards young people working in factories and coal mines and all other things. 
working to make these images a record of the past. I can't wait until they can be reserved for history textbooks, but now is not the time. And this helped him understand the fact that this isn't equivalent to pride activists showing their genitalia on Stephen Avenue in Calgary. This isn't actually the equivalent of people doing heinous sexual acts on on downtown byways and and streets and and whatnot and showing it on on television this is paralleled to what has happened tragically throughout history mass discrimination of a vulnerable population and ignorance and inaction from the people that victim imagery is particularly necessary when the response does not match the atrocity, when the engagement, when the intercession, when the activity does not meet the atrocity, when there's something heinous happening in our world, particularly heinous and happening at a high capacity, and nobody is lifting a finger because they're oblivious to it happening, because they're ignorant, because they're willfully ignorant, because they're trying to bury it, because it's convenient for it to be happening. We need to confront people with the evidence so that this is something that fosters a connection between people. Translating this from an abstract idea of choice, abstract idea of plantations and slavery or separate but equal, or something happening that, that let's leave this up to this other foreign government to resolve the Rwandan genocide. We don't need to get involved at all. That's not our deal. Um, when the response does not reflect the atrocity, the magnitude of atrocity, then victim imagery is particularly poignant particularly effective and particularly necessary because it fosters a connection between potential intercessor and victim, creating a human connection between somebody who has been victimized and somebody who can do something. And that widespread discomfort, that discomfort that comes from seeing a victim and realizing that they need help and that you can help. That discomfort that comes with that builds into full categorical shift, categorically saying, you know what, I am opposed to this injustice. I am opposed to what happened to that tiny human being, to that victim of whatever atrocity they are a victim of. I am opposed to that. And that flows in the third step of social transformation. First is widespread discomfort. Second is categorical shift. Third is mobilization. When somebody identifies and connects with a victim and they are categorically shifted through argumentation towards a full opposition, it is then they become mobilized. It is then that they become active in that area. We see this throughout history. We see this in modern day. I mean, regardless of what you think of the Black Lives Matter movement, you have to acknowledge the, the impact that images of George Floyd and countless others had in mobilizing, in creating widespread discomfort, opening people's ears to categorical shift and mobilizing them. It doesn't always work in appropriate uh, manners or, or areas, but the principle works for good causes as well as for inappropriate causes or causes that get, get off the, the rails, causes that might have accomplished good, but instead accomplished something else because of other ideologies seeping into them. I won't get too far into that. But, but this is how this activist realized and, and was stopped in his tracks towards the fact that this is not paralleled, that at times victim imagery is absolutely important. And victim imagery changes when it comes to how people are responding. 
You think about Mothers Against Drunk Drivers and how many of their um, ads and campaigns show that. And yet, this bridges into a conversation that I actually had with a pro-life supporter, a very, very passionate pro-lifer whom I had talked to initially when I first started fundraising for the role that I'm in now, over 10 years ago now. um, I'd approached him asking for a financial partnership, shared a little bit about the organization. He responded to me with, you know, Cam, I've I've got, I I love the pro-life movement. I love getting involved, but I'm currently uncomfortable with abortion victim photography because I just don't think that it's appropriate or necessary. And he painted a somewhat similar analogy to me. He had said, you know, Cam, think of this. We are both opposed to sex trafficking, the abduction or selling into slavery of young girls in Southeast Asia and other countries around the world, even in our, in our own nation of Canada. This is happening. It's an injustice. And, and people are somewhat unaware of it. And yet we're not going to show graphic imagery of them being violently and sexually abused by these rapists who are hiring their services. We're not going to show graphic pornography of what is happening to them to convey the injustice. We're not going to try to go down that route so that people get involved. And I can understand where he's coming from. I've heard this kind of angle in lots of different areas. We don't publish every picture of every murder that happens in Calgary. We don't publish the sexual assault in practice publicly so as to convict um, criminals of their of their crimes. And what I responded to him was this, you know, we agree that there's so many injustices in our world and that they are perceived differently, that at times those injustices can be corrected simply in a court of law. Many of the atrocities that are conducted here in Calgary and many other um, cities in Calgary and around the world When evidence is brought forward in court of law, justice is served. Whether perpetrators are thrown in prison, whether um, victims have some kind of recompense um, or restitution assured to them, whatever it may be, at times it can be sufficient to go through the legal channels of of our our country, of our um, world, and justice can be attained through that. Many murder victims, many victims of assault, many victims of other areas, there's some degree, if not a, a an appropriate degree of justice delivered through that. What do we do, though? What happens, though, when justice is not delivered through the court of law? Often it turns to the court of public opinion. Often it turns towards, my case has not been heard. My case has not been responded to. Justice has not been served. And so they go to the court of public opinion. And and we think of all of the quotes from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. about how a boil must be exposed to the natural light of public opinion um, before it can be treated. That people actually have to weigh in on this and that these images act as a thermostat for culture, not a thermometer of where culture is at, but rather correcting culture, which may influence the decision either made by um, the courts or at times even made by politicians. And so I first started with that. And second of all, I went back to the earlier points. I had conveyed, you know what, what would happen if you conveyed the fact that there were countless people being trafficked around the world? What do you think people would do? Because currently, when those presentations come through many churches in Canada and America and around the world, people are very, very active in responding. 
financial partnership, adoption of, of people at times, and, and looking for ways that they can get involved. A, a very... Um, one of my coworkers, her sister, is is getting involved in legal work pertaining to human trafficking around the world. It's beautiful how people respond to the information. And for many people, words are sufficient. And so the response somewhat adequately reflects the atrocity. Certainly not fully, which is why for many of these campaigns, whether for sex trafficking, whether for um, refugee programs, whether for other campaigns, there's often a component of humanization of the victims. And, and often that is sufficient for education, for mobilization, for not only the discomfort with the issue at hand, the shift towards I'm going to do something about this and the mobilization for how they can get involved. At times, words are sufficient. At times, you go one step further and you show um, some component of the victim, maybe not the mask masked in blood, but rather here's a survivor sharing their testimony, the Aluda Equianas of the, the um, slave trade, abolition of the slave trade movement and the abolition of slavery, the um, Gianna Jessens and, and Rebecca Kieslings of the pro-life movement, sharing their testimony for many people that is sufficient to change their mind and mobilize them. And yet, what would you do if the, the global sex trafficking movement or organization came into a church, presented all of this information, and nobody did anything? And not only that, but they contradicted them by saying, you know what, sex trafficking isn't happening. This is a made-up thing, and you are just putting money towards your own pockets. You're lining your own pockets. You're buying fancy cars. Sex trafficking doesn't happen. What would you do? And this fellow had a very similar response. I guess if you had to prove to people that it was happening, you'd have to show them some capacity of it happening. You'd have to show some capacity of the violence, the abduction, the, the life that these um, young women and at times men as well are experiencing. You'd have to show them. And you might not show them um, to the capacity of what is the most heinous thing that I could possibly show out of this entire experience to mobilize people. That might not be necessary. And that's the same point that Dr. Monica Miller and many people who advocate in favor of abortion victim photography will take as well. That we're not doing this to show the most horrifying thing humanly possible. But we have gone through the verbal stage of the pro-life movement. And many people, many of yourselves likely, are um, participating in verbal or text-based components. Maybe you, maybe you participate in Life Chain recently. Maybe you participate in other events where you show the text, abortion kills children. Um, you, you share a link on your Facebook page. And maybe you see that there's a very limited response, very limited engagement, very limited change. And you say, okay, the response does not match the atrocity. It does not reflect the magnitude of what is happening. And so maybe you take a step further. Maybe you show ultrasound imagery point towards the fact this is a human being this is a human being who may be ripped apart through an abortion and yet you still don't get the response because there's a disconnect there's a cognitive dissonance between that child and a victim of abortion we've been showing ultrasound imagery for decades and at times they warm the hearts of pro-lifers and yet abortion advocates reject them out of hand because it's still just a blob of cells. The, the ultra, ultrasound images are, are um, low resolution and, and, and they can disregard them as, as very abstract and, and not compelling because they don't demonstrate 
the injustice. The same thing happened during the civil rights movement. I'm sure there's lots of pictures of happy black American families who were living their lives and saying like, these people could be victimized. These people could be hurt through the Jim Crow laws and segregation. I'm sure that um, the abolition of the slave trade tried to present black, um, black Africans in, in England to show like these are humans just like you and I. And yet what was challenged at that point then was not necessarily the humanity, but the atrocity of what was perpetrated against them. I'm sure that even some among the Black Lives Matter movement may have started with talking about um, a more vague or, or quote unquote positive imagery before each of these movements have realized that we need to convey both the humanity of the victim and the victimization of that human. And that's what abortion victim photography does. And so that is how abortion is dissimilar to many of these other injustices when it comes to the frequency and, and necessity of victim images. That's not even to speak to the fact that there's so many victim images out there in these other campaigns. You think about Alan Curdy, you think about World Vision, you think about um, Black Lives Matter, you think about drinking and driving and speeding in school zones and all that kind of stuff and all of the victim imagery that is steeped in that, it might not necessarily go to the same degree as what abortion victim photography goes to. Maybe it doesn't show the exact image of an exact human being lying in a hospital bed after they were struck in a school zone. Maybe it doesn't show that grade four student literally in a hospital bed. But maybe that's because that step, they haven't needed to go to that step because people appreciate the fact that this is happening and the atrocity of it. Abortion victim photography following in the footsteps of the photography, the very, very graphic photography that went along, like I've, like I've mentioned, with the genocide in Rwanda, with countless other injustices around the world, tracing through the history of the most prominent. You think of the story of Emmett Till. If you're not familiar with the story of Emmett Till, either tune into the, the Jonathan episode um, that we had that I dropped in the show notes, buy our book, Seeing is Believing, or just Wikipedia. Emmett Till and how he was a catalyst and how the tragic story of his brutal murder was a catalyst for the civil rights movement. Look at the pictures of the slave ship Brooks and the um, Josiah Wedgwood image of Am I Not a Man and a Brother in um, the abolition of the slave trade and slavery itself and countless other images that were poignant and meaningful and effective in generating widespread discomfort through connecting victim with intercessor, bringing about categorical shift once that um, relationship, once that, that connection had been fostered, and how that led towards mobilization. So those are the two responses that I, that I gave. First, um, to the trans activists that I talked to at uh, Mount Royal yesterday at time of recording, um, as well as um, a, a pro-lifer who brought up a very legitimate um, concern about how this paralleled to other issues. At times, it simply asked a question of necessity. Lord willing, one day um, abortion victim photography won't be necessary in the same capacity that it's currently necessary. Maybe it becomes necessary in the capacity that it is necessary for um, world vision to continue to have that as a, a subtle component of a lot of their imagery. Maybe it becomes necessary only to the degree that mothers against drunk driving have that as part of their advertising and awareness mix. Lord willing, it, be, it goes even beyond that and it becomes 
a, a record of the past, as I alluded to, along the lines of images from the Holocaust or from the civil rights movement or or um, the abolition of the slave trade and how those images aren't shared very frequently at all. They're reserved for history textbooks because that particular injustice has been almost entirely eradicated, if not entirely eradicated. Um, I, I pray for the day that that happens. That's why I do the work that I do. That's why I'm trying to change minds and save lives and transform our culture. That's why many of you are involved. And that's why for those of you who are not yet as actively involved as you could be, I want to give this desperate appeal to do the most effective thing that you possibly can. How do you change minds, save lives, and transform culture most effectively? We have a lot of evidence that has shown that abortion victim photography is an effective, incredibly effective catalyst in achieving that change. And that um, when used by trained and appropriate activists, we, we often make the, the comparison as we've made on the show before, these are power tools. These are power tools that you're going to find in, in my dad or maybe your dad's um, shop. Power tools that if used without training, if used inappropriately, can cause an awful lot of damage to the person using them and the people around them. But if used effectively, they can be an incredibly efficient and meaningful tool for bringing about effective change. And so for more about abortion-making photography, check out the, the links in the show notes below uh, my episode with Dr. Mon Monica Miller, as well as our conversation with Jonathan Van Maren, my colleague and friend. Um, and if you want to go even deeper, check out the book. I'll drop that as well um, in the link. This is Seeing is Believing, written by the aforementioned Jonathan Van Maren. Thanks a ton for tuning in. I hope that you enjoyed the episode and um, look forward to, to future episodes. If you haven't already, um, click subscribe, give us a review, give us a shout out, download some other episodes because we are getting dangerously close to 100,000 downloads, which is really cool. Um, subscribe on YouTube if you want to see what my face looks like and, and what my office looks like and, and meet some of the guests that we're having on. And may all of this drive you and enable you and empower you towards doing even more effective pro-life engagement. Thanks so much. God bless you abundantly.